Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's word. Let's pray. Um, Father, we come to you in the, the name of your son, Jesus, and we are grateful for these words. And we are grateful for these words, even if they don't necessarily match our current experience. Today, Lord, it's on my heart that for those who are suffering, who are confused, who are hurt, uh, who are walking with a limp or some, some wound, that these words would be healing, that they'd be empowering, that they'd be encouraging, validating. But I also want to pray for those who may not really associate with this psalm today, who may actually feel like it feels sort of foreign to pray a lament. But I I pray two things for that individual, that this one would invest these, that you would invest these words deep into their souls so that when suffering comes, they have the language to pray. But also I pray that it would be an opportunity today to stand in solidarity with the many, many, many across the city and across the globe that are suffering. An opportunity to stand with those who are weeping, to weep, as Paul would say, with those who are weeping. Lord, wherever we are, I pray that these words would speak to us and by your Holy Spirit would transform us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, this month, you are looking at various psalms that expand the prayer life of Christians. Songs that give us rich language to express our hearts to God in extremely authentic and honest ways in every circumstance of life. Words and ways to pray that may even surprise us. I remember reading through the psalms for the very first time after becoming a new believer I had cherry-picked psalms here and there before. I was familiar with Psalm 23, who's not. But I I chose to read through the entire Psalter, all 150 psalms, and I remember constantly being shocked. And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't know that you were allowed to pray like this, sincerely. I, I didn't know that you could be this bold and this direct and say the sort of things that David and the other psalmist said to God. It felt sort of foreign to me. And yet one of the surprising messages of the Psalms is this. You can bring anything to God. And I mean that. You can bring anything to God. You can bring your grief. You can bring your needs. You can bring your doubts, your fears, your anger, your disappointment, your resentments, your secrets, your sin. God can handle them. And it's not just that like God 
has learned over time to tolerate such things. But what we see in the Psalms is that God wants us to bring these things to him. He has provided us sanctified, holy words so that we do bring these things to him. The Psalms are an invitation to express whatever it is before God. And so today what we're going to do is we're looking at a lament. Someone came up to me before service and said, hey, would you just mind defining lament for us before you get too deep into the message? So here it is. A lament is this. A lament is an expression of grief. A lament is a cry from the soul to God. One author named Elizabeth Woodson put it this way. Lament is the prayer for folks in the in-between space whose situation, uh, situations do not have easy answers or quick resolutions. In other words, for those who are in the wilderness, the in-between space, or as some would call it, the liminal space, that disorienting place where, you, uh, place where you have left something and you're not yet into the new and you're dazed and you're confused and you're disoriented and you're trying to figure out life. But the more that you look for answers and try to grasp at handles, the more elusive they seem. Lament is for those people in that place, in the tension between. Now, there's a lot that we could say about lament, and there's a lot that I'm not going to be able to cover today about lament, but I think that it's vital that you are at least familiar with the theme of lament, because as some Old Testament scholars and commentators estimate, about two-thirds or about 70% of the Psalms are lament. Did you know that? Over two-thirds of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. Two-thirds of the ancient Hebrew hymn book are songs of grief, sad songs written in the minor keys, lots of A minors and B minors and E minors. And so in order to align your life with God's word, and in order to align your life and your prayer life with the many faithful generations of believers that have come before us, Lament has to be a part of your prayer life. This isn't optional. It's vital. And so I'm choosing Psalm 13 because it's been described as the model example of a lament. If you were to come to me and you said, hey, Christian, just put it simply, give me a clear, concise example of what a lament is supposed to sound like. Psalm 13 would be that example. And beautifully, it's divided into three sections, which is a preacher's dream, by the way. And so we're going to look at this passage under these three headings, honest questions, holy complaint, and hopeful confidence. See what I did there? Uh, Let's look first at uh, honest questions, verses one through two again. How long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now, when I was in high school in PE class, um, I got myself into a situation where I made the wrong guy very upset. Apparently, I retained that ability into my adult years, by the way. Um, but I made this guy, he was older, he was an upperclassman, he was bigger, and he had a lot more friends than I did. And I made this guy so upset that he took me by the neck and he pinned me up against the wall. 
And I remember being very helpless, feeling like I could barely breathe. I couldn't get a word out. I was not able to defend myself. I was just pinned alone against the wall. And I remember looking to my right to one friend that was with me in that room. He was probably, I don't know, no more than 10 feet away from me. And I'll never forget this moment. He just goes like this and turns away. <laughs> like, just what are you going to expect of a ninth grader? He's just like, I don't know this guy. <laughs> and again, he was 10 feet away, but he felt in a million miles away. To hide your face isn't so much about concealing. To hide your face is about not intervening. And when the psalmist is asking God this question, what he's essentially asking is, why are you not coming through for me right now? I know you're there, and I know you're capable of helping. Where are you? Here we see that agonizing search to discover God in the mess of life, when there's both internal struggle, but also external struggle going on. It's the wrestle to understand who God is and what his involvement looks like when life doesn't make sense, when life gets completely out of control. And the psalmist, David, is expressing these emotions and expressing all of this internal struggle through a series of questions. Questions are an extremely important part of lament. As you notice, there are five questions in this psalm. Question after question after question after question. Questions are the way that we express our hearts before God, our fears, our anguish, our hopes, and our desires, and ultimately, our desire for God. Now, there may be many reasons why we don't ask questions in our prayer. For some, it's because maybe they think they know everything. There may be the person that never asks questions in their prayer because they think they know everything there is to know about life and God. Good luck. Or maybe it's because deep down they don't want to know the answer to their questions. I have found that skill in life that you are not responsible for the questions you never asked. That one's for free, by the way. Or maybe it's because we can't bear that feeling of not getting an answer. I, I, this one hits close to home for me. Questions I want to ask God, but I fear... What may happen when I ask that? I fear the response or the non-response that I'll get. See, in the 21st century, we do not do well with unanswered questions. It's been called the curse of the enlightenment. We think that we are entitled to immediate answers. I demand answers and now. And, and we get agitated and we get extremely frustrated when we don't get quick answers to our questions. And on top of this, we live in the information age with an access to a wealth of information. Practical questions no longer go unanswered. I think about for previous generations, which I just had a small taste of in my, in my lifetime, people were forced to settle questions without getting answers to it. Who, who wrote that song? I don't know. Hey, you remember that guy you went to high school with that dated so-and-so, that knew so-and-so? Yeah, I forget their name. Or, what, what about this and what about that? What was the date that that happened? 
Yeah, I don't know. Now what do we do? We Google it. And, and there's about five seconds between that plaguing feeling of not knowing the answer to our question and then that little rush of dopamine that we get that little hit from that sort of rewards our system when we get the answer that then conditions us to resist not knowing all the more. To put it simply, we don't live lives that give space for unanswered questions. We don't lead these lives that give ample space to mystery or in David's case, uncertainty. What if, and this is maybe going to sound heretical, what if God intended uncertainty for your life? Jen Pollock Michelle put it this way, the shift of modernity from the embrace of mystery to a rejection of it has undoubtedly affected our approach to faith. Though the Bible has not changed, our reading of it has. It's certainty we now prize in life with God, uncertainty that we resist. We don't accommodate mystery as well as our ancient and medieval forebears. This probably explains why we don't naturally pray prayers like Psalm 13. It feels like foreign language that has very little to to do with our modern information age. Except that it very much does. Lament is the language you didn't know you needed. Because so much of life, whether we like it or not, is going to remain uncertain. There are questions that Google will not be able to answer for you. There are questions that no one under the sun will be able to answer for you. I mean, for goodness sakes, consider this. Jesus in Mark 13 says these words, but concerning the day or that hour, speaking of final judgment, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son but only the Father. Not even Jesus demanded the level of certainty that we demand today. Psalm 13 teaches us how to live faithfully and hopefully in the not knowing. And what it does is it encourages us to bring those unanswered questions before God. Believing is not opposed to questioning. Now, there are many different ways that we can question God. There's the kind that calls into question his authority. Who are you to tell me this and to uh, to tell me to do that? That's not the kind of questioning we're talking about here. Or there's the kind of questioning that goes something like this. What can God even do about it? Calls into question God's ability. Or there's the popular sort of modern kind that calls into question his existence. Can we really know? I mean, can anyone really know? Or there's the kind that we see in the Psalms that relates to God as committed, as close, as capable. See, within these honest questions that we see here in Psalm 13, there is an acknowledgement that God is first committed. The psalmist says, how long, O Lord, 
Now, many of us know that when you see the Lord written in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's not just a generic term for God or Lord. It's our English translation of the covenant name that Israel spoke of when they spoke of God, Yahweh. These aren't just random questions launched into oblivion towards some random God in heaven. These are directed to the covenant-keeping, committed God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, who has chosen his people and promised to remain faithful to them. This is who the psalmist is addressing. And so what the psalmist knows is something that we have to know as well. And it's that his feelings about God are not an indication of God's commitment to him. Your feelings about God are not the truest indication of who God is. His covenant, not our limited experience, determines God's faithfulness. God is committed. Amen? Secondly, what these honest questions acknowledge is that God is close. He says in verse 3, my God, not a God, the God, my God. If you think about it, this is the kind of claim a child makes about their parent. My mom, my dad, my God. He is relating to God like a child relates to a parent. And when you think about it this way, what kid isn't constantly asking their parent, how long? I mean, for goodness sake, I, I drove down here with my teenager. And I'm like, three more hours, <laughs> two more hours, an hour and a half, you know, like, how, in the car, how long before dinner's ready? How long before dinner? Uh, you know, your little kids in time out. How long? How long? How long before my parent comes home? How long? How long? I would, I would be surprised if I haven't experienced a day where at least once that question didn't come up. It's a question that every parent anticipates. And if you think about it, it's a question that God not only anticipates, but he welcomes. How long? And thirdly, what we see here is that these honest questions relate to God as capable. To ask God assumes that he has the answers. To ask God how long, O Lord, assumes that he is the one that is in control of the timetable. And ultimately, that he is the only one that is able to do anything about it. We confront our problems best when we're facing God in prayer. Notice that David directs his questions towards the Lord. He is not directing his questions toward his enemies. What good would that do? He is not directing his questions toward his circumstances. What good would that do? He is, he is done. He says, I'm through directing questions to his own anxious soul. How long do I need to take counsel on my own soul? Am I destined to just wrestle around with these questions inside? That's not doing me any good. Because he ultimately trusts that it's God alone who can deliver. Who you bring your questions to reveals who you trust is capable. Who you bring those deep 
plaguing questions to reveals who you're trusting. And so as we step back and we consider all of this, what we realize is that these questions aren't being asked in order to get information. These questions aren't even necessarily being asked to get some sort of outcome. He's essentially, the request beneath all of the questions is so that he would experience fellowship with God. What he's saying beneath all these questions is, I want you most. What I need most right now is you, God. The second thing that we see in this passage is holy complaint. I'll put an even more sort of fine point on a definition of lament. Here it is. A lament is a complaint. What does it mean to lament? People will like polish it up, but here it is simply. It's to complain. And put that way, we are all very good lamenters. We know what we're doing. The psalmist knew something long before modern psychology. And it's that it's important part of your, your spiritual and your emotional health to complain. In fact, we know that it can actually have negative effects when we hold these things in. I read a fascinating article that talked about the health benefits of complaining. The health benefits of complaining. I was like, I got to read on. This is interesting. And so what it did was it referenced these studies that were conducted to show the link between complaining and overall life happiness. And what it stated, the thesis was this, that complaining can lead to a happy life. Now, many of us are like, "Mm," I see like a suspicious face over here. You sure about that? But what a professor named Robin Kowalski found was that not everyone who simply complains is happy. We all know this. In fact, we all probably know a lot of unhappy complaining people. And so assuming that everyone complains, but not everyone is happy, what's the deal? And what she said was this, it's all about making the best choice, knowing when to complain and listen to this. And to whom? There's the key. There it is, in a nutshell. It's knowing all about making, it's all about making the best choice and knowing when to complain and to whom. Let's be honest, we are surrounded by countless voices who have just simply not figured this out. People who are experiencing real things like angst, anger, hurt, fear, sorrow, very real emotions, very real circumstances, but they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to express what is going on inside. So they turn to a number of avenues like social media, launching their complaints out into oblivion, just hoping and crossing their fingers that someone sees, that someone is listening, that someone will validate their experience. Or people that hijack conversations, turning otherwise healthy dialogue into a long rant. You know that person. Or or maybe even those who fire off their complaints at others, finding scapegoats to carry uh, the responsibility of that which they're struggling to process in their own lives, complaining about anything and everything but themselves. 
And so what the psychology professor pointed out was that the most effective kind of complaining happens when the complainer understands who has the authority to do something about it. God's not asking you to stop complaining. He's challenging you where you're directing it. When and to whom? That's the point of lament. And I'll just say it simply and clearly. The most appropriate avenue for your complaint, for your complaint, is always going to be prayer to God. Think about the last time that you went on a rant. Think about the last time you pulled someone aside to complain. Who was it to? Was it the right time? Was it the right place? Was it the right person? The most appropriate avenue for complaint is to God in prayer. Amen? There are examples of biblical complaints that are unholy. We have to mention this. What comes to to mind uh, are the children of Israel when they're wandering in the wilderness. What do they do? They complain. And God judges them. They're out in the wilderness and they start dreaming about Egypt. The the garlic and the leeks. Why have you taken us out here to, to die? We were better off in Egypt. That is not a holy complaint. That kind of complaint cries out not to God, but against God. It believes and assumes the worst about him. But a holy complaint recognizes what we have and who we have in God, and it trusts his character and specifically trusts that he's going to hear us and that God cares deeply. Look with me in verse three. Consider and what? Answer me, O Lord my God. Consider and answer me. Russell Moore, in his book, Adopted for Life, tells about this long, difficult process of adoption, adopting children from Russia earlier in their faith. And he said this, of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all others in its horror. It was quiet. The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. And he goes on to say, if you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their beds. I want you to imagine this scene. They didn't cry. It was quiet. Not because they weren't needy babies. Not because there was something wrong with them. They didn't cry because they learned, even in their infancy, that no one cared enough to listen. So what did they do? They stopped. What goes wrong Before we cease to pray. The same thing. We get it in our minds. No one cares. 
But even a simple cry to God. I mean, for goodness sake, I think about Romans 8, where Paul says, with even groanings too deep for words, even the just like, God, ah. Even the prayer that is filled with confusion and doubt. Even the simple cry is itself a significant act of faith. What are we doing when we do that? We are holding out hope that God is listening and that he cares. The psalmist goes on in verses, uh, the end of verse three and in verse four, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. That's the kind of prayer that is desperate for God. What the psalmist is saying is, God, if you do not intervene, if you don't act on my behalf, if you, if you don't deliver me, if you, if you don't reveal your face right now, I'm done. I'm done for. There's something about, and, and there's something remarkable about desperate prayers, aren't there? I think about my context, the church I get to pastor, and our prayer meetings. We, we gather to pray every week. And typically prayer, our prayer meetings begin the same way. Everyone is praying more general prayers about what they know to be true about God, which is good. Sometimes people are kind of doing their theological flex. Let me mention something I read in scripture so I can impress the people I'm praying with today. But then there's that moment where an individual prays an extremely simple yet desperate prayer. And everyone does that. Mm. 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 Yeah. And something breaks. You know what I'm talking about? The, 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 the atmosphere of the prayer meeting shifts. Something breaks open. People get honest. People get real, prayer gets dependent, and God moves powerfully. It's easier to pray safe prayers. I know that. I thought about, why do I pray such safe prayers? I think, I don't know my own heart. It's desperate. Who can understand it? Sick, in fact. But I'm I'm thinking, why do I pray safe prayers? I think it's because if I pray safe prayers, then I'll be less disappointed when I don't get the answer I thought I deserved. When in reality, the Apostle James says, and I love it in the Old English, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Not the cool, calm, collected, safe prayer, but the desperate prayer. Sometimes I have to go back and and read accounts of historic Christian revivals to stoke my heart. And recently I was reading about a revival that happened in the mid 20th century in, in these isles, uh, islands off of uh, the, the Scottish island or off the coast of the UK called the Hebrides. Uh, a pastor named Duncan Campbell records these phenomenal stories of what God did in these little obscure villages. And he says that one night 
people from a small village gathered in the house of a blacksmith. Already, like, I'm hooked. If revival's going to happen, it's going to happen in the house of a blacksmith. And so they're, they're gathered in the house of the blacksmith. They're crying out to God to revive his people. They're complaining about the current state of the church. They're asking God to awaken them. And then a member prays a prayer that was, quote, short and sharp. And he prayed these words, O God, you made a promise to pour out water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And Lord, it's not happening. Lord, I don't know how these other men stand with you, but I know my own heart and I know that I'm thirsty. You have promised to pour out water on him who is thirsty. And if you don't do it, how can I ever believe again? Your honor is at stake. You are a covenant-keeping God. Fulfill your covenant engagement. I remember hearing this phrase a lot in my early faith, contending with God. I think that that's contending with God. Like Jacob wrestling, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And what Duncan Campbell says is that the house shook like the book of Acts. The presence of God, the Holy Spirit filled the community and revival broke out. Young people began to flood the streets in the middle of the night, drawn by what they thought was a bell, no bell rung, coming into the streets, gathering for worship, gathering to put their faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord moved. How and why? Through desperate prayer. The prayer of David in the psalm, the prayer of that desperate person in that prayer meeting, it was not so much like, God, fix my situation. That's, that's where we fall short in our prayer. It wasn't so much fix my situation. It was, God, preserve your reputation. Because it's not just my life at stake here. It's your honor that's being threatened for your namesake. That's a holy complaint. That's a holy complaint. Let's look finally at hopeful confidence. Look with me in verses five through six. But I, and here's the turning point in the psalm. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so this is an extremely important determination. One that any believer who is going to lament must make. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. What's he saying? What he's saying is that my trust is not depending on answers to my questions. So many people do that to God. If you answer these questions, then I can believe you. He's saying my trust is not depending on a change in my circumstances. What change has happened in the psalm? We don't see anything changing. What he's saying is my trust is depending on the steadfastness of your love. The word here in the Hebrew is has said, it means loyal, unfailing love. We live in an unloyal world. But the love of God is loyal, 
and unfailing. My experience is going to ebb and flow. God's love is going to remain the same. And this is the most spiritually and emotionally stabilizing thing that we can confess. See, the psalmist expresses his emotions, but he chooses not to trust in them. Why? Because while emotions are real, they're not final. And while emotions are going to persist, we are emotional beings, they are not unfailing. And while we must learn to pay attention to our emotions, you should never trust them as ultimate. See, lament is where we open our hearts before God and we let it all out. But listen, we have to stay open long enough for him to fill the void because if we don't, something else will. Think about lament as an exhale, but when we go to inhale enough, the thing that is closest is gonna come back in. And so we exhale our feelings, but we inhale God's trustworthy truth. We we exhale our words in prayer as unhinged as they need to be. But then we inhale God's truth. We exhale our subjective experience. We inhale God's eternal character. This is the only way that our sorrow is going to be turned into praise. Which, by the way, is the kind of deliverance that David needed most. What we see happening here is despair is being transformed into hope for God. His situation has not changed. There is no indication that anything changed around him as a result of this prayer. But his heart certainly has. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David has laid his heart bare before the Lord. He is all up in his fields. He is just like ugly cried and ugly prayed before God. But he does not allow his heart to float untethered. He he attaches it to the hope of salvation. He anchors it to the hope of salvation. And here's how we can do the same as well today. The New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner places behind the curtain where Jesus has gone a forerunner on our behalf. What this means for us is that for the Christian, we can tether our hearts to the salvation that God has provided for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we fear that we have been abandoned and and when we're struggling to believe that God cares about us in our present moment and when we are drowning in all of our unanswered questions, we've got to look to the cross of Jesus. And specifically, we've got to listen to what we hear there. We always hear about look to the cross, look to the cross. What about listen to the cross. Because if we listen closely, what we're going to hear is prayers of lament coming from the mouth of Jesus himself. Matthew records for us is that as Jesus was nailed to the cross, that it was about the ninth hour and Jesus 
cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What are we hearing? We're hearing Jesus praying the Psalms, Psalm 22. If we want to be like Jesus, we've got to pray like Jesus. If we want to pray like Jesus, we've got to pray the Psalms. What do we hear? We hear Jesus expressing pain and the pain of rejection. What do we hear? We hear Jesus asking unanswered questions. Jesus experienced the Father's face being turned away in abandonment and judgment at the cross for the sake of our forgiveness so that we could be reconciled to the Father so that the child of God through faith in Christ would never be rejected. Jesus was left alone, pinned to the wall, pinned to the cross, no intervention in our place so that we could forever receive the embrace of God. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that we're not going to go through it in life. What it means, however, is that now we will never go it alone. And for the Christian, we can offer prayers of lament, prayers like Psalm 13, not with fingers crossed, but with confidence that God will never reject us. God will never abandon us. God will never forsake us. Because as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fill in the blank. It no longer has the power to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. How are we more than conquerors? Because of this deep, unfailing love for us in Jesus. Amen? And now, amen, out of the mouth of babes. Let's wrap it up, preacher boy. I got lunch. (laughs) And now, the prayer how long is with a certain sense of confidence. Not a matter of if God's coming through, but when Christ will return. If you fast forward to the very end, to the very end of Revelation, that phrase is repurposed by the set-apart church, saying, how how long, O Lord? Lord, come quickly. Maranatha. Come, Jesus. Come. That's our prayer today. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words that you have given us to express in every season of life. Thank you for how these words really validate our experience, validate the questions that we have, speak to the certain seasons that we face. I pray that these words would be refreshing to those who have been like, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say right now. 
would you fill the hearts, minds, and souls of believers with these words today? But I also pray for those who are helping others walk through difficult times. Those who don't know how to pray for others. Those who don't know how to stand in solidarity with those who are suffering. I pray that these words would be discipling today. That they would help us. That they would fill us with with the words to speak. Words fitly spoken. Wherever we are, Lord, whatever we're facing. Would these words transform our prayer lives? We want to be like Jesus. We want to pray like Jesus. We want to pray the Psalms like Jesus. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen.